Chapter Four of Just As I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just As I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Four A Wilful Man Must Have His Way. The magistrate's office was a panelled room which had been a private chapel in the days when country gentlemen of some standing kept their chaplains. It was a large and lofty apartment that had a look of gloom and a chilly atmosphere upon this October evening, despite the coal fire which burned in the large grate at one end of the room. The grate was recessed in a cavernous chimney, and the greater part of the heat went up to the autumn skies. Sir Everard's writing-table stood in front of the hearth, furnished with a pair of shaded moderator lamps which threw all their light on the table and left the magistrate's face in shadow. Sir Everard loved a subdued light and hated the glare of gas or unshaded lamps of any kind. He had the eye of a hawk and could see as well in this half-light as most people can in the broad day. Humphrey Vargas stood a little way from the writing-table, a gaunt, clumsy figure, his arms hanging at his sides, his broad hands clenching and unclenching themselves with a nervous movement now and then. His dog crouched at his side. The footman had tried to prevent the entrance of that mongrel to the magistrate's room, but Vargas had insisted. "'Where I goes, my dog goes,' he said. "'You can't part us till you hang one on us.' So there the dog was, quiet but watchful, evidently holding himself on the defensive, like a dog who knew he belonged to the criminal classes. "'Well, sir,' began the magistrate, seated in his roomy armchair, not a luxurious or effeminate chair by any means, but the severest pollard oak and dark green morocco. "'Well, sir, what have you to say to me?' "'I want to give myself in charge.' "'Oh, indeed! You are mighty conscientious all of a sudden.' and pray which of your many crimes do you desire to expiate he looked at the man keenly though he spoke lightly supposing he had to deal with some drunken vagabond who was only half in earnest to his surprise however this man did not look drunk his gaunt frame and deeply sunken cheeks suggested starvation rather than riotous living his eyes had a steady look he stood firm upon his feet and spoke like a man who had come there with a settled purpose. "'I wants to give myself up for a murder I did twenty year ago. Twenty year ago this blessed day, the murder of Muster Blake.' Sir Everard looked at him long and steadily, looked at him as if he would pluck out the heart of his mystery, penetrate to the very bottom of his soul. "'Oh,' he said at last, with startling coolness, "'you're the man, are you?' I thought the murderer would turn up sooner or later, but I did not suppose he would be self-accused. Come, sir, tell me your story, as plainly and as briefly as you can, and when I have written it down, I shall read it over to you in the presence of a witness, and you must sign your name to it. Do you understand? Yes, answered Vargas, unmoved. Well, begin said the magistrate, dipping a pen in the ink and looking up at the self-accused with quiet intentness. "'Well, Sir Everard, things had gone bad with me that year, everything. My wife had died, and when she was gone I went wrong altogether. It was the drink, I suppose. 
Perhaps I'd been a little wild in my ways while she was alive, but it wasn't anything to talk about, and she kept home over my head, though we'd had our troubles too. But when she was in the churchyard yonder where she's lying now, with a jerk of his head in the direction of the village, I took to the pubs. They were the only places where I found warmth and company, and I wasted my wages on drink till the children was barefoot. And then, finding myself out of work one morning, and the little ones nigh upon starving, I give it up altogether and runned away. Leaving your children to the workhouse? I couldn't have left them to a better home. The girls was brought up decently and sent to service, and the boys was taught trades. Oh, it's a deal more than I could have done for em. Well, Sir Everard, I turned my back upon my native place and just turned waif and stray, doing an odd job of plastering here, for I'm a plasterer by trade, and a spell of haymaking there, and a week or two at hop-picking when the season came around, till somehow or other I worked my way back here, drifted like, strayed as a dog strays, for I didn't want to come. I'd no home to come to, no friend to give me a shelter, and I couldn't afford to show at the workhouse where my innocent orphans were ever so much better off without a father. Sir Everard had made the briefest note of this preliminary statement. The important disclosure was to come. Well, sir, one October day I finds myself standing under a signpost in a wild bit of country, half wood, half heath, where three roads met, I'm blessed if I knew until that moment when I looked up and spied the name on the signpost how near I'd come to the old place. I knew I was in the county, and the hills and wood had the look of home somehow, but I didn't think I was half as near as I was. I seemed to come all over of a shiver when I found I was only six miles from the union where those blessed kids was being brought up in the fear of the Lord. I'd had no breakfast. I had exactly three apens in my pocket and a screw of tobacco, and I knew I was a good two mile from any place where I could buy a penneth of beer. It was a mild, still day, and the roads and lanes was mucky and soft, just the day for the scent to lie well. I'd seen the redcoats in the distance on the slope of the hill, and I didn't want to meet none of them, for the huntsman would have known me, seeing as I'd run with the hounds and open gates in old times when I was a lad. So I just crept into the wood hard by, and lay down in the holler of an old oak, where I was as warm as a toast among the moss and withered leaves, and where I laid and smoked my pipe for a couple of hours at a stretch to quiet my empty inside. I didn't come out till it was drawn toward dusk, I'd heard the hounds giving tongue and the huntsman's cry more than once while I laid there, as they wound and beat about wood and heath, but I thought I could get quietly back to the coach road without meeting anyone as would recognise me in the dusk. I took a short cut across the fields, meaning to get back to the high road a mile or so from Osthorpe on the way to Highclere, and keep clear of the village altogether. I'd been on the tramp above a week since I left Kent, and I'd slept under edges and haystacks, and there was pains in every blessed bone of my body that gnawed like rats. I had my bit of a bundle swung on a cudgel over my shoulder, and I trudged on somehow, while the crows went wheeling across the sky, which was turning yellow though there hadn't been not one blessed glimmer of sunshine all day. 
well you see sir i trudged along the muddy road and i was just in that kind of temper when the devil gets a grip upon a man and can make him do exactly as he likes i was hungry and thirsty and footsore but what i felt more than hunger and thirst was a raging hate against them as wasn't and never had been nor never was likely to be famished and footsore and without a penny why should they have all the good things and i all the bad things of this life i suppose i ain't the first man as asked himself that question and i don't think i shall be the last but i walks on with such thoughts in my head till i comes to the lane that leads from osthorpe to highclere hard by blatchmardon wood and presently i hears the steady tramp of horses hoofs walking along the soft road and i stands aside to let the rider go by thinking he might be good for a sixpence it's a gentleman in a red coat and i begins my sorrowful tale how i'd a sick wife and seven small children and not a penny to buy bread but before i gets half way through i looks up into his face and recognises him for my old enemy muster blake him as turned me off his estate and out of house and home for a bit of a mistake made by a lurcher dog as i used to keep with regard to some pheasants as he set particular store by i knows him and he knows me get out of my road you vagabond he cries i won't give you sixpence to save you and all your brood from starving oh he looked mortal handsome in his red coat and striped velvet waistcoat, and there was his thick gold watch chain and seals swinging as he moved and shining in the yellow light of the low sky in front of him he looked a regular swell he did that there watch and chain of his must be worth fifty pounds anywhere i thought and i dare say his purse is full of sovereigns for i knowed him to be one of your fine open-handed gentry all as ready to give money to them as didn't want it and old nick took me by the shoulders and gave me a shove as you might say and whispered pull the proud beggar off his horse pull him into the mud and brain him well i looked round there wasn't a mortal in sight it was getting dark i should be miles away before anybody knew anything he was a strong man on a strong horse could i do it while i was hesitating the devil gives me another shove and whispers i'll help you and then i threw down my bundle and clutched hold of the bridle and hit the horse a crack of the skull that brought him on his knees in the road and before master blake could recover from the shock of the horse falling under him he and i had closed with each other in a deadly struggle he was bigger than me stronger than me a better man in every way but old nick kept his word and stood by me like a good un muster blake had only his hunting crop with a bamboo cane and a leather thong he cut me a wonner across the face with a thong but i came down on his bare head for his hat was knocked off at the first go with a knobbly end of my cudgel i heard his skull go crack like a bit of glass and then he fell backward into the muddy road and i just dragged him quietly into the ditch and cleaned out his pockets there was a leather purse full of gold and silver as i hoped and his watch and chain and a diamond ring on his little finger and i felt i'd done a good day's work for you see i, I didn't know for sure as i'd killed him even if that was his skull as i heard go crack the doctors might lay a bit of metal atop of it and make a sound man of him again 
I'd heard tell of such things. So I tied the watch and chain and ring and money up in my fogel, and stuffed it all into my breeches pocket, and caught up my bundle on the edge of my cudgel, and made tracks for the high clear road. "'When and where did you dispose of the stolen property?' inquired Sir Everard, after a pause. "'At Great Barford, six weeks after Muster Blake's death.' "'And I suppose this is all you have to tell me?' "'Yes, sir. This year is about all.' Throughout this confession, Sir Everard Courtney had sat in a thoughtful attitude, with his left elbow on the table and his forehead resting on his left hand, while with his right he jotted down an occasional note upon the paper before him. It was not possible for Vargas to see the impression made on the listener's mind by his narrative. "'Come now, my man,' said the magistrate, looking up at him suddenly with a frank friendliness. "'You've told your story very well, and to some ears it might sound like the truth, but it doesn't to mine.' I know what a curious machine the human mind is, and what strange twists it sometimes takes. Don't you think you'd better forget you've told me anything, except that you're hard up and want a night's lodging? No, answered Vargas in a surly tone. I'm not going from my word. What you took down there, I'll stand by. You will? Have you considered that it's a hanging matter, that you're offering yourself as a candidate for the gallows? I don't feel sure as they'd hang a man after twenty years. You won't find the twenty years make any difference. Besides, it wasn't altogether murder, you see. When I hit him that crack over the skull, I didn't know as it'd be his death. I fear you will hardly find a Daleshire jury inclined to draw such nice distinctions. Mr. Blake was a popular man, and feeling ran high about his murder. I would not give much for your life after that statement of yours has been read before twelve Daleshire men. I'll risk it, said Vargas doggedly. I don't believe they'll hang me. If they do, it'll be ending a life that ain't worth living. Come, get your witness, Sir Everard. I wants to sign that there deposition. You're an obstinate fool, exclaimed the baronet angrily. And if I refuse to receive your statement, I suppose you'll go and make the same confession to someone else. I shall go to Eyclear as fast as my poor old legs will carry me, which is slow enough, Lord knows, and give myself up to the magistrate there. A wilful man must have his way, said Sir Everard, ringing a bell which sounded loud and shrill in the outer office. Your way is the gallows. Remember that I have warned you, and don't ask me to help you after tonight, for it will be out of my power to do so. Don't come and whine to me when you've changed your mind. I shan't change my mind, answered Vargas. I ain't afraid of that. But as you seem to wish to deal kind by a poor devil, I'll ask you a favour. I got a bit of a dog here. He ain't much to look at, but he'll keep your poultry yard clear of rats. Give him an armful of straw to lie on and a bit of victuals to eat, and you'll be doing it ten times over to me. He shall be taken care of, answered Sir Everard. A manservant appeared in answer to the bell. 
send for jackson immediately and take that dog to the stables tell gilbert he's to be taken care of god bless you sir everard said vargas with moistening eyes he took the cur up by the scruff of his neck pressed his cold muzzle against his own dry lips and handed him to the servant the constable will be here in ten minutes if he happens to be at home when my messenger calls at his cottage said sir everard addressing himself to vargas when the servant left the room you have just ten minutes for reflection and repentance if you don't change your mind in that time you'll be booked i'll leave you to reflect he went away leaving the self-accused at perfect liberty to make a bolt of it by the back door if he pleased never had sir everard treated a criminal so leniently this was due to dulcie's influence no doubt End of chapter four